1: Welcome to New Books in Mathematics, the podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Corey Brunson, a host of the channel, and I'm talking today with Susan D'Agostino, the author of How to Free Your Inner Mathematician, Notes on Mathematics and Life, published by Oxford University Press this year, 2020. Every once in a while, I come across a book that expands the boundaries of what I imagine a book of mathematics to be. As a child, I was given a copy of the Penguin Dictionary of Curious and Interesting Numbers by David Wells, which was my favorite math books for years, but unlike anything I've read since. Reading How to Free Your Inner Mathematician was similar in its novelty, but wholly different in its impact. I could describe the essays in this collection as inspiring and motivational, but that wouldn't quite communicate the validation I felt reading them, both for their playful treatment of sometimes deep mathematics and for the analogical codas that linked them to mathematical training and practice. I'm delighted to be joined by the author, and I hope you enjoy hearing from her too. Susan, welcome to the podcast.
0: Thanks so much for having me, Corey. It's my pleasure to be here.
1: It's great to have you. As a traditional opener for the New Books Network, could you talk a bit about your own mathematical background and how you came to write this book?
0: Sure. Yeah, it has everything to do with writing this book, I would say. Um, I always did well enough in math in grade school and early high school. And then in high school, when I got to calculus, I actually hit my first wall. Um, I had a lot of trouble in that class and I ended up dropping out uh, with failing grade, actually. <laughs> um, and then in college I steered clear of math entirely. I was really, I thought that was it for me. <laughs> um, you know, which apparently is a fairly common uh, experience others have learned. Um later as a working adult, I Thought you know what? Why did I leave math? I always enjoyed it, and yes, I hit that one wall, but maybe I could have met that challenge with some more effort um, or some you know, some some other way of trying to um, you know get past it. So as a working adult, I actually started taking math classes at night, one at a time, um, and that way it took me several years, but I completed the equivalent of an undergraduate math major. And I thought, well, I'm not done yet. (laughs) So I went and I thought, well, I'm going to apply to math PhD programs. Um, So I was a little bit of a non-traditional age when I began that process. But um, I entered my doctoral program and and I earned a math PhD. And um, I would say the quest didn't even stop there. Um, I... um, you know, I, I ended up teaching, I ended up writing, I ended up working uh, for my state governor as an advisor, um, you know, on math and science education. Um, I ended up at the Heidelberg Laureate Forum, <laughs> where they have, uh, you know, the Fields medalists and the Abel Prize winners, which are the equivalent of Nobel Prizes in math. Um, and also, I would say I ended up talking to a lot of parents, students, students, um, People who had taken math as, you know, when they were younger. And, um, you know, I helped my kids with their math homework at the kitchen table. Um, so I, my quest, honestly, it, it continues <laughs> in writing this book. Um, I had carried this book around in my head for more than a decade at least, um, before I said, okay, I need to sit down and write this.
1: Yeah, your background that you share in your introduction struck me as very wide ranging and very. I mean, in addition to being untraditional relative to the standard mathematical story we tell, uh, that professors will often tell um, students. You know, you work up through the um, through the academy and you get a tenure track job and you describe it at one point very beautifully as an uncommon view of giving you an uncommon view of individual familial local state national and international mathematical pursuits which i thought was somewhat of a wonderful understatement and so reciprocally i have i'd like to ask with all this influence that you've gained through your experience whom is this book intended for
0: sure um And I don't know that I would even use the word influence. I just want to, (laughs) I think it's more that I've been curious about all about how math is done and perceived and communicated by all of these different people and in all of these different settings. Um, So it's more just curiosity led me to these different places and it has informed um, certainly this book. Um, So your question is a really good one. Because I think that often the world, at least from what I'm told, many people think that the world is divided, that people could be divided into two groups the math people and the non math people. <laughs> and I fundamentally disagree with that view. Um, I don't think that there are math people and non math people. I think that anybody can be a math person. Um, and that is uh, the, you know, where this book, you know, that idea is what birthed this book. Um, So who is this book written for? It's written for anybody who's curious about math. And that may include anyone from who might say, boy, I liked math, maybe in geometry class, but then when I got to algebra two, it was hard and I never pursued it. Life intervened and I took a different path. So that person is who I'm speaking to in this book. Um, But I would also say that I'm I'm also writing it for mathematicians um, (laughs) who enjoy playing with ideas that happen to be mathematical. And um, and I've heard from readers in both of those groups, which, um, you know, has been very gratifying for me because um, I don't think that we need to have to say that a book is, oh, this book is only for math people, or this book is the math book you want to read if you're not a math person, (laughs) because I think that we can bring, um, you know, just as the title suggests, we all have a new mathematician, and we can bring that about, and my hope is that my book might serve as a catalyst for some people.
1: And so to talk about the content of the book, I thought we could just talk through a sampling of the essays in each of the book's three parts. So first, do you want to say a bit about which essays are contained in which part?
0: Sure. So I divided the book into three parts. Um, It was actually a little bit hard for me to decide which chapters went. There are a lot of chapters in the book. There are forty-six chapters. So they're all very short, but there are many of them. And um, each chapter stands alone. So you know the book as you um, you know you've held it, you can flip through it and you see a lot of sketches <laughs> and someone might be drawn to one of those sketches. I think, um, you know, my, my book contract said you know up to 50 and then I started writing the book and later I realized, Oh, I've crossed the 300 mark here. <laughs> I quickly wrote my editor. And said, it's okay. Um, and he said, no problem. Thank goodness. Um, so, you know, if someone were to flip through the book and they found one of the sketches to be you know pique their curiosity they could start in that chapter there really is no order um each one is independent um that said what i did try to do was organize the chapters roughly so that they um there was some you know increasing level of difficulty that said that's a very personal you know <laughs> assessment um, what is Challenging for one person may be easy for another, and, and vice versa. So, um, so very roughly, in part one, um, I used a little bit of a cue from my yoga background. Um, I um, I separated the three parts of the book. I called it them each math for the body, math for the mind, and math for the spirit. And in part one, the math for the body. These are all of these chapters. I believe start with an accessible on-ramp, something that's relatable. Um, You know, so whether that's talking about, um, you know, a certain, you know, city where they might have a layout of bridges and thinking about walking across the bridges, um, you know, to introduce graph theory or to actually talk about tying your shoelaces when I talk about knot theory. (laughs) So even if the math itself has, you know, it, you know, it's substantial and advanced. Um, there was some on-ramp that should be familiar to most people. Um, in the in part two, math for the mind, uh, I these chapters have a little bit of a increased level of uh, challenge right from the start. So, um, you know, they might start with a fam- like a somewhat abstract idea that maybe not everybody is familiar with. So for example, the Harry Ball theorem chapter, which is a real math theorem. That's the name of it. <laughs> it's a funny name, but um, you know, that to understand the Harry Ball theorem, someone needs to understand what a continuous vector field is. And that sounds like a technical uh, math term, and it is. (laughs) I introduced the idea with plenty of pictures (laughs) and sketches. I mostly avoid notation that, um, you know, a lot of people, you know, don't always find intuitive unless you've spent a lot of time with math notation. Um, So, you know, there's still something accessible, um, but the abstract ideas might begin, you know, start right from the beginning. And then part three, math for the spirit, The chapters in this section represent really the height of mathematical abstraction. Topics here include, um, for example, the Klein model, um, which is a uh, four dimensional mathematical object. And I talk about, you know, I have plenty of pictures here too. (laughs) I talk about going for a walk on this mathematical object known as a Klein model. And, um, you know, the funny thing is that you go for a walk on this, you know, bottle that granted you need to kind of contort your imagination to envision you can go for a walk on this object return to your starting place and you'll find that you've turned upside down so i try to take readers on that walk and um you know the idea here is that you know there's a little bit of something for everybody if someone loves one chapter that's great if they find divas chapters and really sinking in right away well they can skip to the next one and um you know, there's a new a brand new idea <laughs> new sketches, you know new stories as an entryway
1: and the way you organize these parts according to a different context is I think illustrative of the way that each one of the essays really links the subject, the mathematical subject to a real world not a real world use case but a real world con- um, conflict or or a setting that someone is gonna be confronted with, something that we have to reconcile in our lives or deal with. And there's an inspiration there that's different from just mathematics is useful in, an, in applied settings. So jumping into part one, mathematics for the body, I very much hope you could talk about the opening essay, which you title Mix Up Your Routine as Cicadas with Prime Number Cycles. This is a phenomenon that I've never seen fail to captivate someone who understands prime numbers, but it's also an example of how you draw practical lessons from abstractions of nature.
0: Yeah, no, thanks for pointing that out. Um, My agenda for the book had everything to do with as much to do with the math itself, because math is beautiful and so worthy of (laughs) thinking about, but it also had a lot to do with how do we persist in math? How do, you know, because math is challenging. It is. It's wonderful, but it's challenging. <laughs> and um, I'm someone who at one point nearly missed out on a lot of math because I had a challenge and I wasn't clear on how to overcome that challenge. So every, as you point out, every single chapter marries some math content with some advice for persisting in math. And then it turns out I've actually used a lot of, you know, this is how I see math. And I, 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 I you know, derived, um you know, this, these medical, this inspiration from the math itself. But I find them useful in life as well, which is what the subtitle is suggesting. that You know, these are notes on mathematics, but it's also on life and how to persist in life. So, yeah, the, the cicada story is one of my favorite, um, you know, cicadas are these these clumsy bugs (laughs) that, um, you know, they they don't fly fast, um, you know, (laughs) like, you know, a predator could easily catch one. Um, And yet, you know, they endure. And, you know, all animals need to have some kind of survival mechanism for, uh, you know, for survival, you know, for that, for surviving. So some defense mechanisms, you know, like poison dart frogs, they taste bad so that their predators don't want to eat them. Um, you know, moths use camouflage and, and porcupines have quills and skunks have spray. And it turns out that these clumsy bugs, cicadas, what's their defense mechanism? Well, it's prime numbers, <laughs> specifically prime number life cycles. And, um, you know, what the cicadas do is they it, technically it's two, two defense mechanisms. One is that they have these mass emergences. So, what's known as a cicada bloom, they all come out at once. And what that means is that when their predators are there, even though they can't run away very (laughs) fast, fly away very fast, um, there are so many of them that their predators are overwhelmed. So, at least some of them will survive. But the second part of their defense mechanism is that they only emerge either every 17 years or every 13 years. And 17 and 13 are both prime numbers. And there's a reason why cicadas, have prime number life cycles, you know, their predators have between two and five year life cycles. And if, you know, in an ideal world, from the point of view of a predator, what they would do is synchronize their reproductive schedules so that they were reproducing every time there was a cicada bloom. Well, that's not going to happen if they have a two to five year life cycle, if their predators have the, the shorter life cycle, because If they're present for one cicada bloom, they're not gonna be present for the next one. So, you know, an ideal, um, you know, cicada life cycle is definitely more than five years (laughs) because that way they're lasting longer than their predators. Um, So the question is, well, why didn't they evolve to have six year life cycles, right? Because, well, that six is more than five. But the problem is that um, six has divisors. Two, and two times three equals six. So the predators that have you know, two and three year life cycles, they could actually synchronize their um, you know, their reproductive schedules so that they were present during some of these blooms. So the truth is the best uh, life cycle for a cicada is not just any number greater than five, but a, a, a prime number greater than five. You don't wanna have divisors. <laughs> Because that's going to minimize the number of predators who are going to be able to synchronize their reproductive schedules with that of um, the, the bloom. So um, the the fact there are prime numbers that are greater than five but less than thirteen and seventeen. But given that there are these you know predators with two, three, four, and five year life cycles, the thirteen and the seventeen are going to you know be that sweet spot. <laughs> So the idea here, you know, the moral I get from this story is that, you know, well, cicadas, you know, they're clumpy, they they don't fly well, um, but yet here they are using prime numbers as a defense mechanism. And what that prime number is allowing them to do is kind of mix things up. They're keeping their predators guessing (laughs) about when they're going to show up. And the moral I take from that or the advice I give is that actually, This can help us in life, you know, mix things up every once in a while. You know, if you're studying math or you're going through some challenge, you know, try something different, Um, you know, go to some unexpected lecture. If you're not somebody who typically goes to talk to your professor, try it anyway. If there's a study group meeting, invite yourself, (laughs) Um, you know, but it also can be, you know, if you're going through a rough time in life, um, you know, maybe change your routine a little bit, just that little bit of unexpectedness can shift things in a way that sometimes can you know, re- give you a reset.
1: Your next essay introduces Voronoi diagrams from a real world use case that I, that was totally new to me. And the essay I think might be my personal favorite because of this. So can you tell me how do trees and how can we Grow in accessible directions.
0: Sure. So, the amazing thing about trees is that they grow. <laughs> they just they grow despite challenges. So, for example, you know when a tree is first growing, um, a sapling. If you imagine, and, and, you know, picture in your head, you know, it might be able to first, you know, send up its trunk, send out some branches. You know, its canopy might be extending in many, you know, in all directions. At some point, unless the tree is, you know, on a flat plane somewhere with no obstructions, um, you know, maybe the tree is in a forest, or maybe the tree is next to a building, or maybe the tree is in, uh, you know, your living room <laughs> in the corner. At some point, the branches and the canopy and the tree's canopy are going to possibly hit an obstruction. So maybe it'll hit the side of the wall um, in the living room, or it might hit the side of a building outside, or it might hit another tree's canopy. What what these trees do is well, okay, I can't grow in that, you know, I can't grow it through the building wall. <laughs> but they actually just say, okay, well, I can't grow in that direction, but I can keep growing in these other directions. And trees just keep growing. It's, it's kind of a wonderful metaphor. The, the math overlay here is that these boronine diagrams actually give you a bird's eye view, and they actually give two-dimensional depiction of what this might look like of, um, you know, a tree canopy, you know, multiple trees um, in a forest. If you're looking down, you can create a map. Um, The, you know, the trunks will be, you can depict them as points on that piece of paper. And the tree canopies will kind of be these blobs (laughs) around, um, you know, around those dots. And, you know, there's a, there's a lot of math going on here that we can talk about. These Voronoi di- diagrams, you know, they can represent tree canopies um, from a bird's eye view. They can represent, you know, it turns out that nature uses them a lot. Um, you know, giraffe spots, zebra stripes, um, you know, the veins, the design of veins on a dragonfly wing, honeycombs, all uh, use Voronoi diagrams. So the idea here is that to me, these... Um, you know the math here reminds me that okay maybe I do hit walls sometimes. I need to be honest about that. <laughs> Life throws curveballs. Here we are all in the middle of a pandemic. <laughs> um, we're going through a global curveball right now. And yes, be honest. Sometimes we hit these roadblocks and and they they do stop us either for a period or you know longer. Um, But there typically is still some direction in which it can grow and focus on that. So that's what this math word
1: Yeah, it occurs to me just now, listening to you talk about these first two essays, that they pair together pretty well in that... The common narrative that I recall from, from being younger and being exposed to biographies of mathematicians is that what the real mathematicians do is plow through difficulties when they encounter them. But here we have two senses in which it can be useful to navigate around difficulties in different ways. You can put forth effort in a different direction than the one you're banging your head against, or you can strategically organize your efforts in a, in a new way that may make new opportunities more apparent. Or or help you dodge the difficulties that you've been encountering for look for a time, and so I think that's a really those two make a really good way of introducing the the the, the rest of this the rest of the uh, the series.
0: Yeah, I think um, I think you're absolutely right that it's um, you know it it's not that we always have to keep banging our heads. Sometimes you know we can turn. <laughs> and that you know there can be a path forward there and that's okay. <laughs> and in fact, you know there probably are many stories of great math that resulted <laughs> when someone said okay, wait, I'm going to go here but go over here and then over here had was a very rich very rich place to discover.
1: Now, a later essay in this part urges readers to resist comparison because of chaos theory. Uh, some listeners may think of chaos as arising from rather complicated systems, but one of the great paradoxes of, of chaos is that very complicated dynamics can arise from fairly simple systems. And you introduce the concept in such a, an accessible setting. So, could you take us through this story and what you take away from it?
0: Sure. Yeah, I love this story. It's it's really a refreshing one. Um, you know, in in 1961, um, MIT meteorologist. Edward Lorenz was working on weather forecasting, mathematical models for long term, long range forecasting. Um, and this was a time where the scientific com- community believed that we lived in a Newtonian universe, which means that there was this belief that as long as you collected enough data, you could predict what was going to happen with clockwork accuracy. And so, you know, Lorenz said about you know, collecting that data. <laughs> he was getting barometric pressure, wind velocity, you know, all of these metrics, weather metrics. And he was plugging them into his computer and running simulations of what was gonna happen with the weather months or years from now. Um, what he was doing was he was trying to predict, um, you know, each at each step in his process, he was trying to predict um, you know, calculate new me- new weather metrics based on the previous moment. And then he was Going far off into the future, there was at one point where he had to, he needed to run a simulation again, and um, he so he put in the same what he believed were the same number <laughs> that he had um, just plugged in earlier. It turned out the number was ever so slightly off because he had used a computer printout which had cut off some of the decimal places. So instead of plugging in 0.056127, he just plugged in. So a real negligible difference, a very small change in the initial condition. And he went to get a cup of coffee, he came back, and he realized, oh my gosh, (laughs) how did I get this wildly different result? He hadn't realized that he had made that very small change in initial condition. Later when he put it together that, oh my gosh, this very small change in an initial condition led to a very dramatic change in the outcome, all of a sudden he had collapsed the entire notion of a Newtonian universe. (laughs) Um, He he realized, oh, this is actually not going to be possible because that small change in the initial condition was actually on par with a measuring error, right? Like we use rulers sometimes. (laughs) And, you know, there are, you know, very small errors that we might, you know, if you were to measure the same thing I were. To measure, we might, and we might even use the same ruler, we might get slightly different values. Um, so to me, I, I love the story because what it, it reminds me is that even in our own lives, we're very sensitive to initial conditions. <laughs> um, you know, it might be that you know, maybe you know, if someone's starting Calc One for lack of a better example, um, you know, you might be in a classroom with a number of other students. Um, or, you know, maybe you're just studying a math topic on your own at night while you're working, the way I had done in my 20s, <laughs> um, you, you know, it might look like, oh, gee, we're all students in calculus one, but everybody's coming with a different background. Might be that, and and even different present circumstances, you know, the, the student who has to work full-time while going to school is in a very different circumstance than the student who need to do that. Um, You know, it might be that, um, you know, you're trying to take Calc-1 without ever having taken (laughs) pre-Calc. Or, you know, everybody comes with different initial conditions. And I think that it's best to just acknowledge that. It's not good or bad. It's, you know, we have strengths. We have areas, you know, opportunities to improve. Um, I don't like to think in terms of weaknesses because I think anything can be addressed. Um, So we all come to any topic that we might be studying in math or in life, with a different set of experiences, different backgrounds, different levels of having achieved prior. Um, and I think it's best to acknowledge, it, it It can actually make for very rich discussions. It's good to talk to other people <laughs> who have different backgrounds. Um, so it's not, you know, it, it, it's not a bad thing to recognize that everyone has different backgrounds. But I think it's just good to be honest about it.
1: another of my favorite lessons uh, comes from another uh, set of historical stories that you provide in an essay on paying attention to details. And so to round out part one, could you recall these cosmic historical anecdotes and the import you draw from them?
0: Yeah. Yeah. This one's fun too. Um, You know, there's math is just great because there are so many stories. Um, You know, if I were a fiction writer and invented all this, I would consider myself very creative, but really I'm just, messenger here. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, in this chapter, I talk about how, well, yeah, everybody knows the earth is spherical, right? You know, it's a ball. (laughs) Um, But the truth is, it actually isn't. Um, You know, if we were to (laughs) round out, you know, flatten all the mountains and fill in the valleys, um, there's actually an approximately 26 a uh, mild difference between the Earth's polar and equatorial diameters. It's a very small difference. 26 miles on the scale of the Earth is not much, but it is a difference. So Earth is not actually a sphere. It's what we call a spheroid, which means that it's kind of spherical. <laughs> um, it's a little bit like a squashed pumpkin, not a tall pumpkin. It's what we call an oblate spheroid. So think about a pumpkin that's a little squashed. Um, and it turns out that all all planets in the solar system are spheroids. Um, none of them are round. <laughs> and, um, you know, the larger the planet and the faster it spins around its axis, the more pronounced that equatorial bulge is going to be. So, you know, Earth, um, you know, it's the difference between its two diameters. is less than 1%. It's actually quite a small difference. But Jupiter, which is, you know, the largest uh, planet, and complete the full rotation, you know, much more quickly. Um, you know, it's, one of its diameters is about 7%, there's 7% difference between its two diameters. Um, so, you know, someone could say, oh, who cares? You know, <laughs> like, yeah, they're they're practically spherical, right? They're spheroids. But for me, um, and it turns out for, for many scientists, um, you know, this kind of wonder can be really engaging And, you know, for a long time, there was a a theory, an infinite theory of the universe. The idea that if you were to get in a rocket ship on Earth and fly up into outer space going straight, you would just fly and fly and fly and and keep going straight and get farther and farther and farther away from Earth. (laughs) One theory out there right now is what we call the donut theory. the The analog here is that, you know, when people used to think the Earth was flat, And, um, you know, someone said, hey, if I get in a ship, you know, leaving Europe and I sail west, you know, people used to think, oh, you'll just keep going or you'll fall off the end of the earth. (laughs) Um, And then someone said, hey, wait, you know, maybe I'll come back from the east. People thought, wait, crazy. you are saying the shape of the earth is different. So here, the, the donut theory of the universe is that maybe the universe is actually shaped like a donut, that if you were to get in a rocket ship, on earth and fly up in what you believe is a straight direction. There may be a point at which you're curving back around and you might come back you know, to the other side of the earth. And we don't know this, um, but it is it is one theory that's out there. And um you know the moral for me here in this map is that you know pay attention to these details. even the smallest people, because they can still this kind of wonder. And um but they can also advance. <laughs> um, but there's even, you know, even when we don't get the answers, there's a lot that's engaging that can really, you know, entertain and delight the mind.
1: So to pause for a bit between jumping to part two, you've mentioned a couple of times already the sketches that accompany the essays, which I found charming. And are actually much more um, prolific is the wrong word. They proliferate throughout the book and they're very fun and often meticulously detailed. And I wanted to ask in parts, partly what's the motivation for them? What purpose do they serve? But also how did you make them?
0: Sure. Um, to be honest, they're just fun for me to draw. <laughs> I, I enjoy drawing. I would not call myself an artist by any stretch, but um so they're, they're basic but um the the detail is the mathematician coming out where i'm trying to convey some essential feature math that i want also i want to communicate in multiple ways through words but also through uh, visuals um the i think i drew a lot of them because it's what's natural for me um i think that my whole life i've been playing with these ideas of you know who can we be as people or who can I be as a person? Um, earlier, I thought, "Oh, I dropped out of calculus with a failing grade. That means I can't go far in math." Well, then I played with that idea, and it turned out that wasn't true. I could, I could keep going. And, you know, nobody would stop me. <laughs> um, so, you know, I became a mathematician. In fact, and um, and that was a wonderful identity for me. It was something I aspired to, and it was something I enjoy, and is um, you now part of my identity. Um, Then for a long time, I was just a mathematician, or I I shouldn't say just, but I was putting my own self in that box, even though I had other aspirations to write, for example. And there was a long time where I was thinking, can I also be a writer? Well, you have to just try these things, right? (laughs) So that's what I tried to do. So now I actually, my identity has everything to do with being both a mathematician and a writer. There were some who said, well, if you're a mathematician, you can't be a writer, or if you're a writer, you can't be a mathematician. I'm, I'm i'm finding my path um so you know the idea of the book initially was i think that i think that teachers work very hard math teachers work very hard especially and um but sometimes the way that math is introduced in school with the notation can bog some people down and the premise of my book was that i could tackle very sophisticated math Even if I had to strip, you know, while stripping some of that notation, um, some of the equations that people sometimes get on. The equations absolutely serve a purpose. They're important. (laughs) Notation as well. And if you're fluent in it, it actually can be very, make everything pretty clear. But not everybody has had the time or the training to read math in that form. And I think there's a lot of wonderful math out there that is can be made much more accessible to the wider public. And um, so the premise of my book was, okay, I'm gonna, you know, strip some of the notation, I'm gonna avoid jargon, um, but I can use anything else (laughs) that might make this feel real for the reader. And so I did that as much as I could in plain English words, but I also tried to do that with pictures because, um, you know, when I taught math, you know, I, never hesitated to just draw a picture. When I'm talking about math at a dinner party, I'll I will absolutely be the person that confess to picking up a napkin and drawing on it. <laughs> um, you know, so um for me it just felt very natural to add all these pictures. Um I didn't realize from the start how many pictures that would draw, but um you know if there was a picture I didn't hesitate. I thought if anything, because I just wanna blow through, get this math it's so beautiful. So delightful! It is so inspiring that I wanted to get it, and in many cases, math can be very visual. Um, so, as I said, my, my sketches are—I'm not trained as an artist, um, and I wouldn't call them artistic. I would call them um, earnest. <laughs> I, I, I cared about trying to draw them to my best ability, despite you know not having any training. <laughs>
1: As as a as an instructor, I know the feeling of doing earnest but not necessarily quality artistic work, and yeah. they really do provide a good anchor from time to time. Where reading math, reading your essays is very fun with if you just focus on the words, but the fun aspect of it is just enhanced by seeing certain of these concepts spill out onto the page with your side notes and your arrows pointing to you, this means this and little quotes from the characters going, I'm doing this. And I'm sorry, I don't have any on mine to to quote from, but they were they were very enjoyable and made the book, I think, um, all the more accessible.
0: Oh, great. I'm so glad you enjoyed them.
1: To To jump to part two, Mathematics for the Mind, one of your most entertaining essays, I thought, was on designing your own pattern. So what lessons do you draw from the scientific and legal exploits of Danny Schechtman and Roger Penrose?
0: Yeah, this is such a great story. I love this one. Um, yeah. So, so Danny Schechtman, he was an engineer and material scientist, um, you know, in the 1980s. And, um, you know, he was looking under his electron microscope one day at this, you know, manganese and aluminum alloy. And um you know, he kind of, apparently the quote he blurted out was, there can be no such creature. What he saw under his microscope um, was that the atoms appeared to be arranged in, um, you know, this aperiodic, which means non-repetitive, but yet still predictable pattern. And mathematicians are all about patterns, right? We love patterns. <laughs> um you know, prior to Schechtman seeing this, it had been widely believed that crystalline structures um, exhibited only predictable, repetitive patterns. So when he made this announcement that he saw this, everybody was outraged. The scientific community was outraged. They kicked him out of his lab. Um, you know, Linus Pauling, who's a Nobel laureate in chemistry, made this very famous quote, you know, Danny Shechtman is talking nonsense. There are no quasi-crystals, just quasi-scientists, <laughs> and you can imagine this must have been mortifying, you know, for this guy who was like, I, "I'm just messenger. I, I'm always saying what I saw." You know, later he was vindicated. You know, Jackman won the 2011 Nobel Prize in Chemistry specifically for this quasi-crystal discovery. Um, and my thought when I read this story, I mean, uh, other than you know, great admiration for. Steckman for you know kind of holding his ground and not cowering to this massive scientific community uprising against him Um, was why were the chemists caught off guard why hadn't they expected these uh, you know non-repetitive yet still predictable pattern because before that in the 1970s so this took place in the 1980s but in the 1970s Sir Roger Penrose had actually designed you know mathematical representation so not he wasn't actually talking about the atoms that he was you know anyone's presumably seeing under a microscope but he had designed patterns with exactly those quality so mathematicians knew that these patterns exist um and you know so the question might have been you know we see patterns all over nature you know, we repetitive patterns we see symmetric patterns um the question at that point in the nineteen seventies might have been well when are we going to see these re- non-repetitive yet still predictable patterns in me? Um, not they can't exist, et cetera. Um, so, um, you know, the moral here for me is, um, you know, yeah, life is challenging. You know, we all know this again. We're in the middle of a pandemic, of climate change. Um, you know, we're all managing very different home lives right now. because you know, what's on? There's still you know, unrest. Um, life is challenging. But, um, you know, the idea here is yeah, design your own path, believe in it. <laughs> you know, you might have a pattern that looks different than others. <laughs> um, don't let anyone tell you it doesn't exist. Um, you know, it, it might, you know, have, you know, it might make some sense to you. You know, it might have what we would call like exhibiting, you know, self-similarity in math. Um, <laughs> so, um, you know, just believe in it. And it's okay if your pattern looks different.
1: So. Now, while reading your book, I happened to also read a fascinating piece in Quantum Magazine by Liam Drew about animals that explore terrain via levee walks. And I think your essay on random walks, also in this part, makes a great primer, though you don't exactly focus on an animal. So what can we learn from the movements of E. coli?
0: Yeah, so E. coli are pretty interesting (laughs) because, you know, they don't have brains, they don't have eyes, you know, yet they still need food to survive. (laughs) So the question becomes, well, how do they find food? And E. coli go on what mathematicians, you know, have uh, the way mathematicians understand an E. coli's movement to try and get food. Um, is what through what's called a biased random walk. Um, the biased part, you know, random walk is a little bit, you know, you can use your lay understanding of what a random walk is. Um, you know, if you don't have the technical definition, that will that will work here. Um, the biased part comes in where maybe you have some inkling of what's working. You know, what the E. coli does is it goes on a series of runs and tumbles, so it it will tumble, and that will land it so that it's pointing in a, in some random direction, and then it will either run long in that direction or run short. The way that it decides whether it should run long or short is it says, okay, do I have a lot of food right where I'm sitting? <laughs> and based on that answer, it will make the decision to run long or short. Um, so it biases. And what scientists have discovered is that through this biased random walk, actually, the E. coli in time, it's certainly not the straightest path. it could It's a dense, a food-rich uh, location. But what scientists have discovered is that, in fact, it will eventually get to a better place with more food. And, you know, the idea here is that, yeah, sometimes we don't know exactly what the best path forward is for ourselves, but we might have an inkling that, hey, if I stay here, or if I go over there, <laughs> that might be a little bit better to maneuver towards whatever it is I'm aspiring to. You know, E. coli, that's food. <laughs> you know, for us in life, maybe we're trying to get into a different professional position or we're trying to communicate with a teenager, <laughs> you know, if you're a parent. Um, you know, th- th- there's all sorts of challenges and we might not know exactly the you know, straight and narrow path to take, but that's okay. Take, use your insight, whatever insight you have where you're standing <laughs> and take some biased random walk. It might not be a straight path to where you're trying to get to, but believe in you using the limited information, get limited, you might have at that moment so that you get to the place where you're landing in a richer, you know, a location that's more rich, whether it's food or insight or professional success or personal goals, whatever.
1: (laughs) So finally, we come to part three, Mathematics for the Spirit. I think there were maybe five or six essays in this part. And I can't help but want to end with your last essay, which was titled To Proceed with Care. Like others in part three, this one takes the reader on a deeper dive into mathematical theory. Could you guide us a bit on that dive and what it can teach us?
0: Yeah, I, infinity is one of my favorite topics because, well, I don't know why. <laughs> I, I suppose because
1: an infinitude of reasons.
0: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> there you go. Um, you know, there, there's some like delight in it for me where a lot of my mathematical intuition gets turned upside down when people start talking about infinity um there's also just a lot that you know I, I i've made progress in understanding infinity i do not understand all of the different kinds of infinity um you know or everything that there is to know about infinity but i, I find it really really compelling to topic. and um i would say that the first time i ever thought deeply about infinity was the moment that i was hooked before um I started studying math formally. I had heard the word infinity, as most of us have, um, and I just thought that, well, infinity is infinity. What's more, there, what, what is it? it's all? It's a you know some giant amount. <laughs> I, I really had a very um, you know ru- like rudimentary understanding of it. I just knew it was trying to represent a large amount. Um, one of the first times infinity, the topic of infinity gave me pause, was when I learned that there were, in fact, different sizes. In fact, there are some infinities that are much larger than others. And I, this was news to me. (laughs) I had um, not known. And, you know, we can actually even come up with examples from the number line. So, you know, the counting numbers, one, two, three, four, you know, keep going, never stop. Well, that's an infinite set. The counting numbers are what we call natural numbers. That's actually the smallest size of infinity. And as I said earlier, you know there are some, you know, strange things that happen with infinity. So if you now think about a different set, let's think about the set of all fractions, one half and one third and negative, you know, 115 over 362, you know, all the fractions, and you can include even the integers, right? So one, for one over one. That's an infinite set as well. It seems to have more numbers in it than the set of natural numbers because a set of fractions, rational, has all of the natural numbers plus some others, right? Turns out these two sets of infinity are exactly the same size, which also is also great. So, okay, both smaller sets of infinity. <laughs> but if you actually add up, you know, not add up, if you actually put into it every single number that's on the number line, so, throw in all the counting numbers, throw in all the fractions, but also throw in all of those, what we call um, transcendental or irrational numbers, you know, numbers like pi, or e, throw in all of those. That set is actually a bigger size than both, you know, than that natural numbers, which is the So, the idea here is that, you know, some of these are actually kind of manageable like what we actually call countable infinity. Those are the math. They're just have the rest of time and you wanted to sit down and count them, you could. i <laughs> like put them in order and count them. But some infinities are so large. They're what we call an uncountable infinities. They're so large that you could not even, even if you had the rest of time, you could not sit down and begin counting range. So, you know, the idea here is, you know, Deep with care in life (laughs) because sometimes there are these subtleties that you might have like glossed out earlier but yet are really deep and profound and are worthy of paying attention (laughs) Um, because they're interesting because they're important for a variety of different reasons just pay attention you know take care with those details because they can actually be important
1: Now, before I contacted you, I found your book at the Oxford University Press website. And while an excerpt of the book wasn't available, it did link to a blog post you wrote towards the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic. We alluded to this a little bit before if anyone's listening years from now, this is September. It's in the midst of the pandemic in the US. This essay you wrote draws from the book but you open, it, you open it with an encouraging point of reference from an historical pandemic. And I wonder if you could reiterate that message.
0: Sure. Yeah. So, you know, at the beginning of this pandemic, and I wrote that blog post, I think it was around March, like at the beginning of the lockdown, um, which, again, if anyone's listening in the future, caught everyone off guard know, we really thought the schools were closing for two weeks. <laughs> and you know, that clearly did not play out that way. Um at the beginning of the lockdown, you know, there was this great upheaval for everyone. It didn't matter what who you were or what you were doing. Everybody's lives were thrown into chaos um, and, you know, in a fairly short time frame where it hadn't been expected earlier. Um, at the beginning of the lockdown, I, you know, I'm on Twitter and I saw a lot of people tweeting about, um, you know, hey, when the, you know, the Great Plague hit London in 1565, you know, Isaac Newton used his time when he was in quarantine or in lockdown, you know, he um, discovered gravity, he invented calculus, you know, discovered calculus. Um, you know, he 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 was very productive. And there was almost this pressure that like, oh, okay, in the middle of this um, you know, existential angst, <laughs> this global, you know, emergency, somehow we're supposed to be giving the uh, inventing calculus. Um and You know, I thought it was important to point out, you know, of course, I'm very grateful (laughs) for all of Newton's work. Um, You know, if if that's what it took, I'm glad he had that time to quarantine, focus, and move science forward. Um, But I think it was very important to point out that, um, you know, when he was in lockdown during that pandemic... um, you know, he wasn't expected to like immediately transition into a patchwork of conference calls and 24-7 emails. Um, you know, he didn't have children underfoot who he was taking care of at home who also had their lives thrown into chaos. They were feeding their people friends. You know, he didn't have this 24-7, you know, news cycle and social media commentary on, you know, global emergencies. basically. So, that blog post I was writing, um, that you know, like your your effort to focus <laughs> and do work, whatever that work is, might present more challenges, um, you know, in in this moment. And um, my suggestion was that yeah, so, you know, we can we can look to math and find some metaphors. For, you know, many of them I point out in my book. Um, you know, for persisting, whether it's in our work or in our lives with our professional or personal goals um, that, you know, we can use the time and, and rely on math and science, but it's okay if, you know, we're not all out there inventing and discovering calculus, um, you know, at the same time that we're managing all of it.
1: That is a point very well taken. So to begin to wrap up, I always ask, like to ask, what's another piece of scholarship or media that you think makes a good companion to yours?
0: Sure. So, um, and that's a great question, especially now, because, you know, we are all still somewhat at home and, <laughs> you know, what, what can we be focusing on? Um, I, I betray my biases in the places where I choose to write. <laughs> so, you know, like Oxford University Press was always my first choice publisher, but directly to them. And um, I was very grateful that, you know, it, it was a good match um, I, I, you know, I'm working on other books, but I'm also, um, uh, you know, I write articles as well. And, um, you know, the places where I'm writing, I write there, I choose to write there because I admire them and what they're doing. So, um, you know, if someone is enjoying my book, um, you know, lately I've been writing a lot for quantum magazine and, um, I love Quanta. I actually, it's my honor to be affiliated with their public science journalism. I think they do a fantastic job. Um, it's as I said, it's public science journalism, so it's you know no paywall and um, and you know the the level of writing is accessible and um, you know awe inspiring in terms of topics that they choose. Um, but there's a lot of science journalism out there as well. Um, you know, so you know they're they're you know, lots of different venues. And if anyone were to go to my website and see where the various places I'm writing from, I'm still working on getting there and others I've, um, you know, been published in recently. Um, so I would, I would say, yeah, right now, especially when we often only have these small nuggets of time, I would say go for the public science journalism because, um, you know, it's just science journalism, which is, you know, in many newspapers and magazines, American, um, you know, there, there are many out there. Science section of the Washington Post. Um, you know there, there are a lot of different places where they are actually talking about science, and they're talking both about. Um, you know you can you can decide what you want your diet to be. <laughs> your reading science reading diet. Uh, of course, science journalism right now. Um, the Atlantic. I, I just had a piece in the Atlantic, which was thrilling to me because the science journalists at the Atlantic are, um, I think, among the best in the profession and. Um, you know, they're, they're doing amazing work right now, reporting on the, um, you know, the coronavirus. Um, and, um, but they also do some of this wonder stuff <laughs> that's a little bit more timeless. Um, so they're, you know, both that, for me, I like the balance of both timeless science that, you know, could endure, you know, like, it'll be interesting today, tomorrow, 10 years from now, 100 years ago, you know, whenever. Um and then also, what's happening in science right now? What are we understanding about this virus? Um, you know what? You know what is it, what does it mean for society? What does it mean across political boundaries? Um, so for me, I would say, especially right now when people have only short amounts of attention because we're being pulled in so many different directions, um, I would pair my book with um, quality science journalism.
1: And to wrap with the traditional closing question of the New Books Network, you mentioned a book or two you might be working on now. So what are you working on now?
0: Yeah, so um, I'm, I'm definitely writing a lot of articles. I actually have three in the works at the moment with pressing deadlines, but I love them. I, you know, I, When I choose an article to write, it's because I'm very both inspired by and curious about the topic because I might know something about it enough to pitch the story to an editor um, and enough to know that it would be a compelling read for the reader. But there is always discovery in the process of writing and then, you know, doing some investigative work for it. Um, And I love that. (laughs) I love um, knowing, okay, this topic, but now I'm going to discover, I'm going to get in deeper, I'm going to understand the nuances, and then I'm going to try to communicate what I have understood to people. Important. So, um, so, yeah, I'm working on a lot of articles, which is also nice for me because it ends up, um, you know, it's shorter-term goals that I end up hearing from readers, communicating with readers, my editors as well. Um, and as I said, I, the places I'm writing, I, I only go back, I, I go back to places where I really enjoy the editors. Um, you know, I think that we do a great right job. Um, so, um, so, yeah, I've got a number of articles in the works. Um, and, um, and I'm working on a book. I'm a little bit... <laughs> um, I, I've decided um, that I have an, I've had another goal that I'm very excited about. It's a new territory for me um, because I I just enjoy that. I love trying something brand new um, because it, it just wakes up different parts of my brain, my spirit, um, mind. I guess I'm very familiar with the, part of the book again. <laughs> So I I have two kids and I um I um they're teenagers now, but I have extremely precious memories of reading children's books and um many of them science books. You know, we, we read the whole gamut, the fiction, and everything, but uh, particularly science stories. So not necessarily, you know, like how to books, but um where you know the science comes alive through people. Uh, and um, so I'm trying my hand at uh, writing about science for kids, and um, I am loving it. It's very challenging, um, and which is pretty much why I want to be doing it, um, because I think that um, the you know I, I did it you know uh, an article I published earlier this year um, in Quanta was uh, uh, an inter based on an interview I did with Donald Knuth, who um, is a you know World renowned uh, computer scientist. And, um, he's been working for years, actually, producing his book a series, you know, several volumes in his book known as The Art of Computer Programming. And, um, he and I talked a lot about storytelling. And, you know, the quote I love from that article that, you know, in my conversation with him was that the best way to communicate from one human being to another through story. And, um, you know, as you pointed out in this book, How to Free Your Inner Mathematician, many of the on that that used were stories about suffering, messing up, starting over, finding something strange. strange. And, you know, that engages adults. I think it also engages kids. And um, I think that, you know, there's something about children's writing where, you have to get to the essence, you know, you have to distill the ideas because you have to be much more economical in your word choice. Um, So yeah, so I'm a little tentative about talking about the topic of the book because it's still forming, Um, but I can tell you it's absolutely happening and I'm loving it and I'm loving the process, the journey, and I can't to see where it goes. And um, and so that's what I'm on right now.
1: That is a tantalizing tip. And when it's finally published, uh, I hope you'll consider coming back on to the New Books in Mathematics podcast to talk about it.
0: Absolutely, this has been such a delight to talk to you, Corey. Thank you so much for having me, and um, and for all the work that you do. Because you know, promoting reading um, and opening, you know, I often find that i i come to a new I come to hear about a new book through a podcast, and I'm grateful to people like you. Who make that easy for me where I realized, oh yes, this is a book I want to read and I then go and get it. I'm grateful for that. So thank you for the work that
1: you do. That is much appreciated. I too am grateful to the many other hosts on the New Books Network who've informed me about books in various topics over the years. I've been talking with Susan D'Agostino, author of How to Free Your Inner Mathematician, Notes on Mathematics and Life, published this year by Oxford University Press. Susan, thanks again so much for joining me on New Books in Mathematics.
0: Thank you for having me, Corey.